All right. Good morning. My name is uh, Scott. I'm one of the pastors here at Pillar Jacks. Uh, it is an absolute pleasure to be worshiping with you all this morning. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and start to uh, make your way to the book of Hebrews. Uh, we've been in Hebrews for about four weeks now, and we're continuing uh, in our series today. Today we'll be in Hebrews chapter 5, uh, the last uh, few verses in there. So chapter 5, verse 11, and we'll be going all the way through uh, chapter 6, uh, verse 20 as well. If you are uh, using one of, your, one of the provided Bibles, uh, the text is going to be on page 943 today. I'll give you guys a moment to turn there. So it was, it's about 16 years ago, uh, my, my girlfriend and I, who is now my lovely wife, Katie Groves, uh, we decided to take a trip to the beach. At this point, we'd only been dating a few months. It was uh, summer of 2006, to be exact. Uh, for some reason, uh, we decided that we were going to drive down to Ocean City, New Jersey. Uh, we were living in Pennsylvania at the time, um, over you know, western PA, well, central PA, uh, Lancaster County area, so not too drastic of a distance. Um, but in our preparations for leaving, um, you know, I, I decided I'd print out two copies of a MapQuest. Uh, it's probably foreign to some of you, not to me, because uh, I actually had to use it. Uh, but you know, MapQuest for there, MapQuest for back, right? Those of you that understand printing one back, you always need one for the way back. Um, so the following day, after we, you know, all our preparations, we departed for the beach. Got there at a decent time, enjoyed the day with one another at the beach, ate some good food, and then we wrapped up for the day. As it drew to an end, we started packing up and began our departure back from Ocean City, New Jersey, to Lancaster, Pennsylvania, or so we thought. So we started driving back based off the MapQuest, I knew that heading back from the beach towards the Garden State Parkway, probably the worst highway system I've ever had to drive on in my entire life, there's one exit that I needed to get off of in order to head west towards Philadelphia and get back on the Pennsylvania Turnpike. Pennsylvania Turnpike takes you from Philadelphia to Pittsburgh, um, but I needed to get on that in order to get us back home. So, as you can imagine, when uh, we'd made it, to that time of our trip where I needed to ensure that I made that exit, I hear these words from Katie. She goes, weren't you supposed to get off on that exit? At which I responded, nope, I know where I'm going. <laughs> well, I thought I knew where I was going. But as the sun began to go down and the night started in and the highway on the highways, I was now driving back, the highways I was driving back on, they, they just didn't look like the highways that I eventually, that I took to get to New Jersey. So, I definitely missed the exit. But, in my pridefulness and neglect, I continued ahead. I was now heading north rather than heading west, where I actually needed to go. I'd searched for exits, I'd searched for turnarounds, there simply wasn't. I had four lanes to the left of me, four lanes I was on, four lanes to the right. The Garden State Parkway, which there was none. There was no exit at that time. So after a few hours, both Katie and I saw signs for Staten Island, New York, at which I think it was about this time that I had uttered these words, I think I missed 
the exit. A trip that was supposed to take three hours. Three hours from Lancaster to New Jersey, three hours back. Even through Philadelphia in 95, it now took upwards of eight hours. In my complacency and my neglect to the signs and the warnings around me and to my lovely wife, Katie, I'd taken us four hours north as opposed to three hours west. We eventually made it home, and I'm thankful that my father who's traveled all over the United States of America, popped out a map at 11 o'clock at night and was like, you need to go here. And I eventually made it to Interstate 78, which is all the way on the northeastern corner of Pennsylvania. And I had to get back down to the border of Pennsylvania and Maryland. But I want you all to remember, there was no GPS at this time either. So give me a little grace as well. Listen, my, my purpose for this story, and I don't often use story, but this one fits so Good. You'll see that when we read through today's text, complacency is absolutely a real thing in the Christian life. If you constantly neglect the things in which God has called you to, to draw near to Him, to progress in the most holy faith, you will find yourself in a status of drifting away from Jesus Christ and you're going to find yourself drawing to the world rather than pressing ahead and confidently drawing near to the throne of grace in which we saw last week. You remember the main idea for overall for the book of Hebrews. The main idea for the book of Hebrews is remain faithful in every situation, looking to Jesus who is superior in every way. The main idea for today's text, and I want you guys to think about this before I read through it, is that you would consider the implications of complacency and that you would seek to build upon the gospel truths. That you would consider the implications of complacency and seek to build upon the gospel truths. And we're going to see as the author is, is writing to this Hebrew church at this time, his tone is that of, of warning and caution. But it's quickly at the end. He ties it in with a word of encouragement and perseverance. Pay close attention to that as we read through the text. All right. So we enter in and we start in verse 11, chapter 5. About this, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from the dead works and of faith toward God, and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, 
who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm, and holding Him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. When God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will, I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, attained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. When God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by which two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the, of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. Would you please pray with me before we get started? Father, I thank you for the truths found in the text today. Lord, I pray that as I am uh, through your word exhorting those to look at their spiritual lives, their assurance of salvation, the faith in which that you have granted them. Lord, I pray uh, that we would examine ourselves, Lord, that your text would plainly speak, and Lord, that we would, if we are sitting in complacency, if we are neglecting our faith, Lord, if we are drifting towards the things of this world, Lord, that your word that is spoken today would draw us back. God, your word is powerful, as we saw last week. It is able to divide joint, bone, and marrow. God, today I pray that among all things, Lord, that my own sins would not be able to, to mask the word that is spoken. Lord, that your spirit would grant um, a, a way to, to move in here and a way to, for us to respond to your word. God, I love you so much. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. The way uh, that I structured this, I have broken down into four points, but these points are directed to the, to the genuine believer themselves. And I'll touch base um, a little bit on that at the end of the, end of the, end of the sermon today. But if we break it down, uh, you know, if we look at uh, chapter 5, verses 11 to 14, my first sub-point here is consider the implications of biblical knowledge without practice. Consider the implications 
of biblical knowledge without practice. The author of Hebrews, he's been, he's been moving right along uh, in his exhortation of Jesus Christ as supreme, as Lord of all. He says, how much greater is he than the angels, than Moses? Last week we touched on Jesus as the great high priest after the priestly order of Melchizedek. If you notice, if you notice and if you've been with us and if you've read ahead in this text at all, you'll notice that this week's text, he takes a step away from that buildup in his letter. We see a pause in that progression and as before he moves into the explanation of what that priestly order of Melchizedek or as Christ as the final and forever great high priest, he instead moves into a series of warnings. The author uses these to press into the original readers of this letter. If you have an ESV translation, you may see it titled Warning Against Apostasy. If you're using another translation, CSB, it titles it as The Problem of Immaturity. If you're using an NASB, I don't even think it has a title in there. Nevertheless, I want you to notice that the author has become deeply troubled over the spiritual status of some of his readers, some of the Hebrews that are within that congregation at that time. He's deeply troubled that they're unable to move on to a deeper explanation of what you'll see next week again, the Melchizedekian priesthood, and why Jesus is named the high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. His warning to his readers is that their dullness of hearing can, in fact, lead to apostasy. And apostasy itself is those that reject who Christ is, those that reject the saving work of Jesus Christ, those that are within the church themselves who, in fact, have you know, never believed, as the Scriptures have said, and have left as well. So I want just to bring that to mind as well. So this sluggish, this lazy state, this dullness of hearing that the people have moved into, that is a dangerous, dangerous place to be. The Hebrews have actually developed a lack of urgency to progress in the righteousness. And instead, they need to be reminded of the basic truths of God's Word yet again. He tells them they need milk, not solid food. And in this case, milk meaning the elementary doctrines seen in the next section of the text. We'll expound on that a little bit. But the solid food meaning that, hey, you are building upon these solid foundations that you have already been told about and that you know. But also a more well-learned and understanding of these Christian doctrines. His caution here to them is that they, they've developed this and they, they now need to go back and remind you of the truths and you have once learned and they've now forgotten. There's a portrayal of progression that the author uses here. He says, this sluggish behavior has gotten into the way of your own spiritual development as a Christian. He wants them to grasp hold of this. He wants them to realize that they are living in spiritual infancy and they have a lack of desire for spiritual maturity. This, in, in fact, have lasting effects on the Christian life as a whole. Evidence is that they're just, they have not, evidence that they have not progressed forward is, he says in the text, they should now, by this time, you ought to be teachers. 
and their inability to instruct others in the basic principles of the oracles of God. Oracles here meaning the basic truths of God. An indicator that one has been walking in obedience to God's word, that, hey, you've moved from the milk, you're moving up to solid food, you're walking in faithfulness and obedience, your desire to get a deeper understanding of the gospel truths of Jesus Christ found in the word of God. How do they do this? Well, he says, he says, by making a practice of the truths that they learn, not just gaining knowledge. My point here is consider the implications of biblical knowledge without practice. Listen, like, you know, you're, it's, it's not just going to happen. Yes, we are, we are uh, living as a Christian in the life with the Holy Spirit. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, but we also, in that, we have a part on our end to progress forward. It's this partnership that we have once entered into, yes, together in order to progress in sanctification, moving on in the Christian faith as well. So, I want you to think seriously here for a moment. I want you to evaluate your spiritual maturity or status right now. I don't want you to compare to others. We have a tendency when we say this kind of stuff, we have a tendency to look at maybe the leaders of the church or those that uh, who have grown up in the faith for years and years and years and it's like, hey, I want to be like that guy. Do not do that, okay? I want you to seriously look at where you currently are, where God has you in your spiritual are you growing in the knowledge? Are you practicing what the Word of God teaches? Are you making a practice of the things that are actually sinful? Are you heading down a narrow path? Or are you heading down the narrow path uh, that Christ has called us to? Or are you going on the path that the world is so easy to enter by and you are preventing your own progress of spiritual progress? So, how can we think about this? How can we think about this well? Well, first application point today is I want you to practice the truths that God has revealed through his word. Practice the truths that God has revealed through his word. We should not be quick to think that a dullness of hearing cannot enter into our own spiritual lives as Christians. Sluggishness comes quicker than we can even recognize sometimes. And if we are not careful, we too will start to forget the gospel truths that saved us from our sinful, wretched ways, being brought from the darkness into the light. You should consider that word practice here in verse 14. The author uses it in context of actual application in the Christian life. Consider the comparison of milk being stagnant in progression, unskilled and unable to teach the truths of God's word, and solid food as progression toward being well-learned and discerning what the scriptures do, in fact, actually teach. Josiah mentioned it today. It's so good. Paul in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, he exhorts his readers. He says, Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Through the reading, so this is the reading and study of God's word, so that you may discern what is good, what is pleasing, and the perfect will of God. So we can be doing this together as Christians in discipleship. I want to challenge you that if you're not actively discipling someone or being discipled, you need to seek someone. 
This is how we make sure that we are not becoming sluggish, that we are not becoming complacent. It holds us accountable to each other, but ultimately to God. It also ensures that we are seeking to build one another up in the most holy faith. Subpoint number two. Uh, if we move on to chapter six, this is from chapter six, verses one through eight. Consider the implications of neglecting spiritual growth. Consider the implications of neglecting spiritual growth. This next section of text that we have here uh, in chapter 6, verses 1 to 8, they're building off of the previous section as well. Verses 1 to 3 here, they list out some of the basic principles or elementary doctrine that the author is referring to. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Remember, the goal of the author here to his readers is to press on to maturity. That these foundations, these foundational truths that you have already been once laid are to be relied upon, not revisited time and time again. While he uses the word leave here, Okay, he says, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. He's not saying that we are to abandon these whatsoever at all, these basic doctrines of Christ, but we are to build upon them to progress forward in our growth. If you remember again, I'm going to repeat this, repeat this over again. Remember his audience, Hebrew Christians who have came from Judaism, they're now Christian, and uh, ceasing to, ve- to actually develop. There's some in this congregation who are likely, and this is just um, a thought, to be clinging to some of those old covenant beliefs still as well. One thing that's actually quite interesting is that this list of basic principles, it doesn't at first appear to be exclusively Christian, meaning that they could be associated both practices in Judaism and Christianity. But I don't think as the author presents the text today, that um, he's referring to these, them not actually adhering to these truths, meaning they could be um, as I was on there. Which, so if you look at the language he uses in verse 1 of chapter 6, he says, go on to maturity, meaning the goal of growth. The goal through all this is growth. Not laying aside, again, the foundation that's already been laid, meaning not repeating, but resting in the finished work of Christ that is on the cross. Next few verses. This is challenging text. I will be honest with you on there. Verses 4 to 8, which have been debated extensively by theologians. But I want to read it again. I want to leave you with something to think about as we go through this. He says, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have come and then fallen away to restore again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful for those whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. With that being said, I cannot stress enough to you here that you remember the context of where this is said, that you remember who the original audience of this is. Many have concluded that this section of Scriptures refers to the loss of someone's salvation. However, 
you would then have to assume that the New Testament Scriptures teach that you can, in fact, lose your salvation. This is simply not the case. Verses, uh, chapters, uh, I'm sorry, books in the, the book of the Philippians, letter to the Philippians, chapter 1, verse 6, Romans chapter 8, verses 38 to 39 are just some to think about on there. We consider and we look closely at today's section of Scripture with the author's warnings to stop being sluggish and move on to the, uh, into mature things of the faith. And in light of what is urging the Hebrews to do, we must consider that this is a dire warning, a warning against committing apostasy, one who has visibly been part of the church but has since rejected the truths of Jesus Christ. This does not neglect the fact that based off of the parable of the sower, I want you to think about the parable of the sower for a second, that those, there are those that are brought close enough to the gospel but eventually rejected because they were never had the full assurance of faith to begin with. And we see that in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. Consider again, too, the church that the Hebrews are a part of. There is likely those within the context of their congregation that say and believe in their mind, intellectually, that they are Christians, but in fact, they reject Christ with their heart and their actions. We fast forward to today, the same thing can be said about folks within the context of this church as well. There's a reason that I had the scripture reading that Josiah read today. I'm going to read it again because it's worth it. It says, but you do not believe, just a portion of it, sorry. You do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. When we think about application of this text, application point for this is commit to building upon the faith that Christ has secured you in. Commit to building upon the faith that Christ has secured you in. And this is not a call to add to the faith in which he has been, which we have been given by way of works or gaining merit with Christ. It's simply a compelling response to submit to the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. So as Paul says in Philippians, to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. To work out means to cultivate continue to progress. Always be examining where you currently stand. If we look forward to the end of today's text, I'll mention here, we see that Christ, who is the anchor of our hope, He is strong, He is trustworthy, and He is able to stop us from drifting with the winds and currents that life brings. We move on to the next section of Scripture here, uh, verses 9 to 12. My next sub-point is, consider the genuine assurance of your faith. Consider the genuine assurance of your faith. We've seen now two dire warnings from the author uh, to the Hebrews. And it would, seem, it would seem unlikely at this point that he would even really have a word of encouragement or a word of 
encouragement to persevere, but he does come around, come back around in the next few verses in the manner. He writes, he says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, he's talking to the Hebrews, he says, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Though he previously stated what, again, we saw uh, through verses four, uh, 4 through 8 there, he believes, he believes that in general the lives of the Hebrew Christians give evidence of genuine spiritual renewal. The reality of their salvation. Because he states, he says, you have things that belong to salvation. Their genuine spiritual renewal is evidenced by a list of three areas of fruitfulness in their lives that he sees. He mentions their work or their labor within the ministry. He mentions their affection for God. The love that they have shown for His name. And finally, he mentions their service to fellow brothers and sisters. They have loved and continue to love the people of God. The point here is not that their good deeds earn them favor with God. But God is aware, just as the author is, that these works, these things that they are doing, have testified to their spiritual genuineness. The author's way of, after such necessary rebuke, encourage, to encourage the Hebrews that he has seen the work done in their lives. However, he wants, he wants to see them take it one more step. We see that in verses 11 and 12. Where he says, And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who, those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. He exhorts them. He's exhorting them with the fruit in which they've already evidenced. But he calls them to eagerly press ahead into Christ. To be serious about their faith, and not to be sluggish, but hardworking in their faith, and that they would be patient and persevere in the faith, just as those who, through faith and patience, have inherited the promises of God. There's three things that we saw in this particular section. I want, you to, I want to look at these in correlation to what I just talked about. And I have three questions for you, and I'll expound on them as I go. Are you laboring in the ministry where God has placed you? Are you laboring in the ministry where God has placed you? What I mean by that is, not think of laboring in ministry as having to be an elder or a deacon within the church. No, this means, are you ministering to those whom God has placed around you? Be it your wife, be it your children, be it your co-workers. Don't overthink this. Don't think big in the sense of ministry. Minister to those in which God has placed in your path, in your life. Second question here is, do you love God and show, us, show affection for Him? Do you love God and show affection for Him? I'm just progressing as it's mentioned in the text as well. Do you love His glory? Do you desire to please God? Do you desire to glorify God? 
you're placed in a position where you have to choose God over what the world is telling you have to do, are you willing to stand firm and not buckle at what the world wants you to do? And the last question is, do you love you love the people of God and seek ways to humbly serve them? You love the people of God and seek ways to humbly serve them. I can guarantee you, right now, in the midst of this congregation, there is someone within this body that could be served, that needs your help. That is what we do as a body. We are to build each other up in the faith. We are to build relationship to where we are close with one another, to where we are we are with each other to where we can recognize when somebody's becoming complacent or drifting away. But in this case, also to help them, to humbly serve them. This last section of scripture, uh, verses 13 through 20. My last sub point is I want you to consider the greatness of God's unchangeable character. Consider the greatness of God's unchangeable character. As we, you know, at the end of, um, sorry, in verse 12, it talks about through faith and patience inherit these promises. We examine these last few verses in here. The author of Hebrews cites Abraham as that chief example of receiving God's promise. We see that back in Genesis chapter 22. He focuses here on the patience of Abraham, for it was many years. Many years had gone by while God was fulfilling his promise both through the birth of his son Isaac and through his restoration that we see in Genesis chapter 22 where he says again, um, I will surely, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained that promise. Verse 13 states, God made that promise to Abraham, and he says, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. Meaning that God, who has no one higher than himself to swear by, is that highest authority, and therefore is a firm ground of assurance. Many times an oath that was sworn by a person in the Old Testament was normally sworn by God's name. But in this case, we see the example through Abraham and God's promise to him that God has sworn by himself, meaning that God's, through God's unchangeable character, that that promise will be fulfilled. We see in verse 19 and 20, it brings us right back to the person and work of Jesus Christ as that great high priest. And we'll see next week, we'll pick back up with that priestly order of Melchizedek. We talk application here. My last application point is that you would hold fast to Jesus who has gone before you and is the anchor of our soul. Hold fast to Jesus who has gone before you and is the anchor of our soul. I'm going to draw an illustration here and 
you know, this kind of is geared towards more my my Navy brethren as opposed to the Marine Corps. Um, but I want you to picture the size of uh, of an aircraft carrier. I don't know if anybody's actually ever been on an aircraft carrier or not before, but have you ever considered the weight of an aircraft carrier itself? How does something like that float in the water? I am by no means a physicist or anything, a mathematician whatsoever. Uh, that's not my point here. But the weight of an aircraft carrier is over 220 million pounds. That's massive. If you think, okay, as that aircraft carrier is floating along all over the world, in the ocean, through many seas, how in the world does that thing, when it stops, what holds it? Okay, you ever think of that? Well, looked up and there's two anchors that weigh each, two anchors, okay, each that weigh 60,000 pounds. And the chain that holds those anchors themselves, and those links, okay, those anchors themselves weigh 20,500 pounds. When you think of Christ as the sure and steady anchor, the anchor of our soul, the power and the might that is behind the anchors to hold that aircraft carrier, how much more powerful is our Lord Jesus Christ? In context, I want you and I encourage you to hold fast, to be patient, especially if you are in if you are in here right now and you are in the midst of trial or if you are in the midst of suffering. Okay, Jesus has entered into the most holy place. He has torn the veil. He has gone behind the curtain. And for those who have placed their faith in Him. He's entered heaven on our behalf. He stands ready as that great high priest to impart comfort, strength, forgiveness, love, joy, and peace to any who flee to Him for refuge in that time of trouble. Like that anchor, again, that holds a boat steady in the midst of a storm, in the midst of trial, in the midst of suffering, He will sustain you and he will be steady for you. And when you are battered and beaten in life, he can do this forever, since he is that great high priest who can only, <clears throat> who has gone behind that curtain, but he is a priest after the order of Melchizedek who ministers to the power of an endless life. Love you guys. You join me in praying. Father, we have seen a call today by the Scriptures to not be complacent, to not be dull of hearing, that we would have ears to hear, that we would not be sluggish, that we would not be lazy, that we would not, in the time, in the midst of trial and suffering, that we would flee to something else that the world wants us to go to, but that we would, in fact, Draw near to you, draw near to the truths of your word, and draw near to the hope, the anchor of our soul that is found in the person and work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, Lord, I pray, I pray that as Paul calls us, that we would work out our salvation with fear and trembling, 
that we would examine where we currently stand, that we would examine the genuineness of our faith, God, that we would respond rightly to your word. God, I thank you for the power of your word. I thank you for the truth of your word. God, I love you so much, and I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.